0: Philippians 1, 27, up to and including chapter 2, verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In ninth grade, my English teacher was named Mrs. Roach. It was R O C H E. I don't know why she didn't try to pronounce it Roach or something like that, but if you can imagine the amusement we got out of that pronunciation. But I do remember uh, Mrs. Roach, she taught us how to diagram sentences. And you can imagine how exciting that was to ninth graders, diagramming sentences. But I wish I had paid more attention to those. Adjectives and adverbs and participles and conjunctions and subjects and objects and verbs and so on because that's what I do every week now in my life. I take I take pieces of scripture and I diagram the sentences and I try to go back to the original as best I can and try to try to figure out how every piece of each sentence fits together and works together. And I have to say that sometimes Paul doesn't make it easy. What we have here in verses 1, 27 to 30, is one long sentence. Our English teachers would have called it a run-on sentence and probably marked it with red ink. And chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, is one more sentence. In order to make sense of it in written language, We divide it up in this version into six different sentences. But it's one sentence and then one other sentence. Why such long sentences? Well, it's because of how Paul and others wrote. We call it wrote, but they actually weren't doing the writing. They were dictating their letters. And so what we have here is spoken language reduced to writing. And then as I speak it again, it becomes spoken language again. And So spoken language is has different conventions, and we see this this piling up of expressions time after time for for emphasis. We see Paul use that that repetition constantly. Another aspect of the grammar here that jumps out at us as we're going through Philippians is not only the the complexity of these two sentences, but the mood of the main verb changes. Now, um, a couple of things about verbs, uh, the different moods of verbs, not so much how they feel about life that day, but uh, a couple of moods are the indicative mood, which indicates something, which says this happened, this is happening, or whatever. It's a declaration. And that's what we've had up to this point. All of the verbs have been indicating something. And now there's a switch. Each of these sentences has one main verb, and that main verb is in the imperative mood. And an imperative is a command. And so that signals something to us that there's a a transition here, and it's an early transition for Paul. Normally, Paul loads up the first half of his letters with indicatives about what God has done in Jesus Christ. And then he says, therefore, therefore, this is how you must live. And he gives us a series of imperatives. He gives us a series of commands. Philippians isn't like that. Philippians is a friendly letter to one of his supporting churches, and so it's not a theological treatise so much. He's not dealing with theological errors, and so it goes back and forth. We've heard indicative up to this point mostly about Paul himself, a missionary report saying, this is what has happened to me, and by the way, these adverse circumstances, with me in prison, here in Rome probably, have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, and so I am rejoicing. But then he turns and says, no matter what happens to me, this is how you should live." And here he turns to the imperative, and he instructed them and he instructs us in how we should carry out our Christian lives. The first, the first imperative verb is an interesting verb, uh, not common, but it's a it's a verb that That means to live out and look at verse 27. It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. But this this verb has interesting overtones because built into this verb is is the the piece polis. You've heard metropolitan. A polis is a city. And so this verb has to do in some cases with living out your citizenship. It doesn't always mean that. But I think in Philippians, it does have those overtones. Live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, I say that because Philippi was a Roman colony. And one of the things they were very proud of was the fact that they were Roman. Citizens. Their city was named after Philip of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great. And they were very proud of the fact that they were Roman citizens. And so uh, Paul refers explicitly later in uh, chapter 3, verse 20, to their citizenship in heaven. Great. You Philippians are citizens of Rome. Wonderful. But there's something even more important. And this is what I'm calling you to do today to live out your citizenship. According to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when it says here the gospel of Christ, that means the gospel about Christ. So live according to the gospel about Christ, the good news about Christ, the good news of the son of God becoming human of living according to God's law perfectly, of dying on the cross, of rising from the dead, of giving salvation to all who believe in him. Structure your citizenship in the way you live out your lives as citizens of heaven, according to that message of the gospel. Now, the main aspect of citizenship that Paul wanted to see, whether or not he was there or whether he remained absent. You remember last week? He was he was between two options. He's in prison. He's awaiting the trial. And he's saying, maybe I'll get out. Maybe I won't. He finally talks around to saying, you know, I really will get out. I'm pretty sure of that because you need me and I can contribute to your growth. So I'll get out of this. But he was contemplating. What if the trial doesn't go as I cope? These are the possible options. I could live or I could die. But no matter what, Christ is glorified for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And then he says here. He says, whether I come, verse 27, whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you. And here's the the aspect of citizenship on which he focuses here. I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. And there's some debate about this, but I think that spirit should be capitalized here. I think he's referring to the Holy Spirit, that you stand firm in the one spirit, in the Holy Spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So what's the one aspect of citizenship on which he focuses? It's unity. Unity as a body of Christ. Unity as Christians. Now, we have had some hints, subtle hints up to this point in Philippians, that maybe things were not altogether perfect in the church of Philippi, one of Paul's favorite churches, but we've had some hints that, that maybe there's some situations going on in there. And now we're getting a better clue of what the situation might be. He won't address it specifically until chapter four, but all through the letter, he's leading up to chapter four where he says, get along with each other, unity. And here he says, unity, 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 in the one Holy Spirit, one Holy Spirit and one soul, he says here. Uh, let's see, verse 27. I hear you standing firm in one spirit with one mind. It's actually one soul striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, the faith which is the gospel. So that's the big deal here. That's the unity. And um, their disunity um, was not a disunity of a church that had turned aside from the gospel. That's that's important to note. Some churches become disunified because they take their eye off the ball. They start focusing on something else other than the gospel. And so they start fighting about what shall be the priorities of the church. Well, if you take the gospel out of the way, then it's up for grabs. And, And they start fighting about this social agenda or whatever it might be, this political stance, whatever it might be. When they take their eye off the ball of the gospel, that was not the Philippian church. You see, they were they were striving for the faith of the gospel. They were all about the gospel. But it's possible even being all about the gospel to have conflicts among us. Oftentimes about how we do the ministry of the gospel. And oftentimes we can get confused about our preferences and our programs for the progress of the gospel, confusing those with the gospel itself. And so he's saying... You need to, you church, you church Philippians that are focused on the gospel, you need to strive together for the faith of the gospel. Now, the unity was all the more urgent because there was opposition. And we see that in 28. It says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Now, who were the opponents? Well, we we don't know for certain, but if you look at verse 30, it says, Paul says, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. So what was Paul's conflict that he had and still had? It was a conflict with the Roman Empire. Uh, he He was in prison in Rome. And so it's likely that they were having the same sort of difficulty with the political authorities, with the Roman authorities. And what would be the the nature of that that difficulty? Well, the Roman Empire required allegiance, required a confession of faith that Caesar is Lord. And these Christians burst onto the scene and they spread across the, uh, the Roman Empire and they do not declare Caesar to be Lord. On the contrary, they declare Jesus to be Lord. And so that sets up a a conflict that is unresolvable between the Roman Empire and the empire of the Lord Jesus. And the, the subjects of the Roman Empire and the subjects of Jesus' empire. And so he's saying, live out your citizenship according to the gospel. And what do those who believe the gospel declare? They declare that Jesus is Lord. That's what Paul went around the Roman Empire preaching. Paul was in prison, still preaching that message. And he says, you are having this same sort of conflict. Is Caesar Lord or is Jesus Lord? Now, notice that if they would remain united, in the light of the opposition, they would be assigned. sign to their opponents and assigned to themselves. Verse 28. Not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. Now the question here is, what is this and what is that? Because it says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. Well, it's not entirely clear what these are, but it looks like the whole package is, is the this and the that. This unity... Under the Lord Jesus, in the face of opposition, is the that. It is the sign of destruction for the opponents and of salvation for them. Paul doesn't explain how that worked, How their unity in Christ, in the face of opposition, functioned as a sign. But we can imagine it something like this. That here are these Christians, steadfastly declaring... Without fear that Jesus is Lord, come what may. What are they announcing? They are announcing that there is a kingdom that is greater than the Roman Empire. And that announcement and that lack of fear, that unity in that that declaration that Jesus is Lord is a, a sign to the Roman Empire that its days are numbered. And it's a sign also that those who confess that are heirs of salvation. So it's a double sign here, their unity in the face of opposition. And he says, and that from God. What is the that? It looks like it's the whole package here. It's this, this unified faith in the face of opposition. But then speaking of, speaking of something being from God, a gift from God, he says in verse 29, he mentions Two other gifts from God. And so you see how this, this kind of association of ideas. He says, that's a gift from God. This unity in the face of opposition. Oh, and speaking of gifts, I want to talk to you about two other gifts that you have. He says, for it has been granted to you. This is the verb. We don't have a verb like this exactly. but well, I guess we do. Graced. This has been graced to you. This has been given freely to you. Granted to you that for the sake of Christ... You should not only believe in him. So that's the the second gift. First gift is unity in the face of opposition. Second gift is believing in Jesus. He says very clearly, faith in Christ is a gift of God. Now, of course, faith in Christ is our action. We are the ones who must believe. But how are we able to believe? Who is it that grants us that, that capacity to believe? Is it because of some astuteness on our part? Is it because of some righteousness on our part or that that we have figured things out better than others? On the contrary, it is a gift of God. And so he reminds them that their faith, their believing in Jesus is from God. He he says that very clearly in, in Ephesians 2, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works that no one should boast. That's the second gift. So unity, faith. And look at the third gift. It's been granted to you not only to believe in him. This looks like it's building, doesn't it? To something even better. Not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait. Unity, gift of God. Faith, gift of God. And then he builds to the crescendo and says, and not only that. It gets even better. It's been granted to you, grace to you, to suffer for Christ's sake. Now, how is that a gift of God? How is that a grace? It seems to us just the opposite, doesn't it? But if we look at, look at church history, we get a clue. And we don't have to go far because the persecution started very, very fast. In Acts chapter 5, verse 41, we, we see how, how this could be a, a grace. It, the, the apostles were hauled in before the authorities, and they were, they were threatened, and, and they were told not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And Verse 40, it says, When they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They went out rejoicing because they considered it a, an honor to be mistreated for the name, the name of Jesus. Now, why, why is that an honor? What's well, an honor because they were being treated like Jesus was being treated. Like these the same folks treated Jesus that way. And they were so closely aligned and identified with Jesus that they were receiving similar treatment. And so they received it as a gift, a gift from God, that they would be so identified, even publicly identified with the name of Jesus, that they would suffer for his name. It's not our fault. It's not our fault that we live in a a land where there is religious toleration. It's not our fault that we have never been beaten, as I'm imagining either few or none of us have been for the gospel. It's not our fault that that's not our experience. You don't go out and look for this kind of thing. And and it's a blessing that we have to have the freedom to preach the gospel without fear of, of persecution at this point. But we should recognize that we're missing out on something. That there's a gift that, that we don't get. That, that we, we don't understand. And, and that makes much of the New Testament, or at least many significant verses in the New Testament, kind of opaque to us, foreign to us. Paul later in this letter is going to talk about sharing in the fellowship of Christ's suffering. And and the best we can do at this point is kind of stick our face up against the glass and, and watch these brothers and sisters throughout church history and around the globe today share in Christ's suffering and rejoice because they're so identified with Jesus that they get the same sort of treatment that Jesus got. Now, someday this might change here. Some people are prophesying that. The changes are coming. I I don't know. I can't foretell the future. I don't know what our situation will bring. I don't know how Christians will be treated in the future. But two things that we need to take away from this. One is this, that no matter what happens, we need to be publicly identified with Jesus. When they think about us, they should say Christian. Christian, Christian, Christian. There should be no doubt about that. And then, if... So being publicly identified with Jesus, suffering comes upon us. We'll need to be ready to receive it as a grace, as a gift from God. That's the first sentence. (laughs) Live out your citizenship by being unified in the cause of the gospel. The second sentence, also quite complicated. There's an imperative in it, too. And it's a word you should recognize if you've been considering going along with Philippians. It's in verse 2. Complete my joy. Complete my joy. But he builds up to this this command, complete my joy, with a long conditional section. Verse 1 is a conditional section. And if, so a conditional sentence. If, If, then. If, then. And he has if, if. If, and if, and then, then, complete my joy. And what are the four ifs? Notice these four ifs. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ. And we had to smooth it out here because it just says, if any encouragement in Christ. And I think he's referring to theirs. If you have any encouragement in Christ. If any comfort from love. If any participation in the Spirit. I want you to notice something. I tend to do the same benediction at the end of the service. Some pastors vary it. I tend to use one that comes from 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. And it goes like this. May the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen. Line that up with the first three of these conditions. If there is any... Encouragement in Christ. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Any comfort from love, the love of God the Father. Any participation in the Spirit and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Same word, communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So it looks like these verses are lining up in a Trinitarian way. That is to say, with focus on the Son, with focus on the Father, with focus on the Spirit. Saying, if you have these things given to you in the son, in the father, in the spirit, encouragement in the son, comfort from the love of the father, participation, fellowship in the spirit. And then the the fourth one is is general affection, sympathy. Here, Paul looks like he's focusing on what they share together, the affection and sympathy that they have. Then he says what the command is. The command is, kind of surprisingly, isn't it, complete my joy. So at first glance, it looks like Paul's getting, getting selfish here. He's saying, here's my command to you, complete my joy, make me happy. First he says, live as citizens, then he says, complete my joy. This command to complete Paul's joy indicates, once again, another thing that's been jumping jumping out at me in this series on Philippians, and that's this, that our joy is, contrary to what I used to think about joy, is at least partially dependent on circumstances. And the circumstances on which it's partially dependent are principally our relationships with one another. Paul is saying to them, My joy, to some degree, is in your hands, Philippians. And I'm depending on you to make my joy complete. More specifically, pastors and missionaries' joy depends on the health of the churches. And, and I can say that with, with, uh, with personal experience. Sandy knows that if I spend the night tossing and turning in my bed, and I'm not able to tell her what's going on, it's because there's some sort of a conflict in the church. Now, thanks be to God, I haven't been doing that here lately in Florida Coast Church. But she knows that that my joy and my peace is is wrapped up in the the health and particularly in the unity of the congregation. Paul's saying, complete my joy. This also recognizes, expresses beautifully the closeness between Paul and the Philippians. that, That Paul couldn't have complete joy unless the Philippians... We're unified. It also affirms how important this quality of joy is for the Christian life. We've seen it. Let me see one, two, three, four times already in this little letter. Paul says, I rejoice. I rejoice. I work for your joy. And now he says, you work for my joy. You see how this is reciprocal? My joy to some degree is in your hands. Your joy to some degree is in my hands as well. Now, the way the Philippians could complete Paul's joy is in verse 2. He says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. So once again, what's the focus? Unity. So he hits it again. Unity. One, 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 one. Same, same, same. By being of the same mind. Uh, A couple of concepts that are very prominent in Philippians... Joy is very prominent, and also this idea of mind. Although it gets kind of covered up in our translation, it's translated a number of different ways. Uh, it's translated as concern. Sometimes it's translated as mind. Sometimes it's translated as think. Um, but the idea is not just cogitate, think about, but it's a mindset. It's an outlook. And so he says, have the same outlook. Have the the same mindset. Having the same love. What love? Well, we just talked about in verse 1. Any comfort from love, that is the love of the Father. Being in full accord. This full accord is is same soul. He's already told us one soul. Now he says same soul among us. And then he says once again, and of one mind. Of one mindset. And then he explains how that works. That kind of unity. How can we have that kind of unity among us in the church? And the answer is this, by not being selfish, but focusing on other people. This is where the rubber meets the road. Verse 3, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests others. It's getting very, very practical here, isn't it? It's no longer theoretical. Yes, we're all in favor of unity. Yes, we recognize that unity promotes joy and disunity saps joy. We get that. So, yeah, let's have unity. What's that mean for you? And what's that mean for me? It means to walk in humility. And and we've made it through the 70s and the 80s, all the emphasis on on self-image and, and, and pop psychology. This is not pop psychology. This is not so much what you think about yourself inside your, your brain. This is how you interact with others. This is, this is putting aside your preferences and putting them in, in second place and putting others, other as priority over yourself. This is very, very practical and not only very, very practical, it's very, very difficult. And it, it seems like we're, we're hardwired to look out for our own interests. I, I've had this, sometimes it's kind of one of those two or three in the morning, can't sleep kind of thing, thought. And it's a terrifying thought. And the thought is this. I think, oh my goodness. I look at the world constantly from my own perspective. And there are, what, eight or nine billion other people on the planet doing exactly the same thing. And that's terrifying. And, and, and that's, a, that's, that's a natural thing for us humans to do. And Paul recognizes here that, that it's natural for us to look out for our own, own interests. He doesn't say completely ignore your own interests, because he, he does say uh, also for the interests of others. But he's saying reverse the priorities your folks. Put other people's interests before your own. Now, we often look to our own interests in disregard for the gospel. We're just not living out our faith in the gospel. We're not living as citizens of the gospel, and so we get selfish, and we look out for ourselves and not for others. But once again, we can be selfish and look out for our own interests even as we're preaching the gospel. How do we know that? Well, Paul already identified two groups in Rome. Back in verse 27, or I'm sorry, in verse 17, he says, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. And this is how insidious, this is how how subtle, this is how perverse this self-focus can be. We can be announcing Christ, but doing it for selfish reasons. And so... This is a a very deep sort of call to to look out for the interests of others by focusing on the gospel. And even as we're focusing on the gospel, to beware of that that tendency, even as we're doing that, to put our own interests first. This this uh, this quality of humility. um, We're not going to get beyond this because the rest of this chapter is all about this. Um, but this quality of humility is, I don't want to say uniquely Christian, but it's almost uniquely Christian. It, it pops up other places in philosophy and in, in religion. It pops up elsewhere. But it was, it was despised in the Roman world. So for, for Paul to be promoting this as a positive virtue was obvious that it was a, another kingdom. Another set of values. They were not the values of the Roman martial uh, empire. So this almost uniquely Christian virtue of humility is the key here. Because if we start with that, with humility, we can put others before ourselves. And if we're all doing that, the end result will be, hum- uh, will be unity among us. And if we're unified among us, guess what we'll have? Joy. As well. By the way, that's a principle of all relationships. If there's not unity, there's not joy. In a marriage, in a parent child, in a in a church, in a in a business, in a school, whatever it might be, if there's not unity, there's not joy. And so humility leads to unity. Unity produces joy. Unity is also makes the church invincible before its adversaries. And unity also demonstrates our heavenly citizenship. So we're going to be camping out on this idea of unity for the rest of this chapter because Paul does. And he does it in three ways. I'm not going to get ahead of myself here. But these three ways, and look for these, are first and foremost, the humility of Christ. Second, how we work it out in our relationships with one another. And then two shining examples that were well-known to the Philippian church now why is it that Christians should be all about humility the shocking answer is this because we have a God who humbled himself let's pray our God I thank you for this church that we're a unified church I thank you that Through the pandemic, we've maintained our unity. Other churches have not. And I thank you. That's a gift. We read it today. It's a gift, Lord. Thank you. And I thank you for the joy that that gives me as a pastor. But I pray that we would always guard that unity, as Paul says, keeping the unity of Spirit and the bond of peace, that we would always protect that unity, Lord. That we would protect that unity by being humble, giving preference to one another. And that the result would be joy among us. No matter what happens to us. No matter what happens around us. That we would be able to live with joy. As citizens of your kingdom. In the midst of this world. So keep us unified Lord. Keep us joyful. By working in us. True humility. In light of the fact. That you. Our God. Humbled yourself. To give us salvation.